0: It's a real pleasure to welcome Balaji Srinivasan back to a Cato Institute event. About three years ago, during my second month at Cato, I introduced him to speak at a forum we held in Palo Alto. When we met, I instantly recognized him as one of those individuals who impresses and inspires me by exuding a palpable combination of intelligence, focus, creativity, and enormous energy and productivity. His talk that day received really positive reviews what I would characterize as a review of how technology was enabling Adam Smith's vision of the marketplace as regulator. Last year, I introduced P.J. O'Rourke at an audience, and I uh, mentioned how humiliating it was to introduce someone who had written more books than I'd read. And uh, putting a different spin on this, uh, it's perhaps more humbling to introduce someone who's founded and sold more companies than the number of books I've read and holds more degrees than the number of books I've read. Bology received bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in electrical engineering, as well as a master's in chemical engineering from Stanford University. At a time in their lives when many students are hiding beer or bongs in their dorm rooms, Biology co-founded a company in his. That genomic screening company, Council, has passed the milestone of one million tests and is now utilized in more than 4% of US births and was acquired earlier this year by Myriad Genetics. It's also the reason Biology received a Wall Street Journal Award for innovation in medicine. And at the time, I think this was 2013, was named by MIT's Technology Review as one of the top 35 innovators under the age of 35. He's been a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and the co-founder of Earn.com, Teleport, and The Coin Center. He became CEO of Earn.com in order to engineer a turnaround of the company prior to its uh, acquisition by Coinbase, where he now serves as chief technology officer. In his undoubtedly abundant spare time, he occasionally teaches classes at Stanford including a MOOC that reached over a quarter of a million students. Uh, I will say before I ask him to come up to the stage that uh, if you look at Balaji's Twitter feed, uh, the picture that he has up there is of uh, the guy who photobombed Janet Yellen by holding up a sign saying, buy Bitcoin. And uh, because Cato has a certain reputation to uphold, and uh, we believe that... um, you shouldn't poke the bear, poke regulators. Uh, I don't think I've ever admitted publicly that the young man who did that was actually a Cato intern. (laughs) Who had been sent to uh, Yellen's testimony to take notes. (laughs) It's further interesting to, uh, to tell you that when we were deciding what Cato's response to that event should be, I had to recuse myself because he also happened to be dating my daughter. <laughs> and he's actually here today, Christian. So no, no photobombing anyone today, please. <laughs> but please join me in giving a warm welcome to Balaji Srinivasan.
1: All right, great. Um, So uh, what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful, um, but the blockchain as a transnational algorithmic regulator, um, that's exactly what you thought I was going to talk about. Um, But uh, just as a show of hands here, before I get into that, um, who here has a Coinbase account or has heard of Coinbase? OK, that's pretty good. OK, great. It's just a few blocks from here. So if anybody wants to visit, we've got some employees and probably take you on a tour afterwards if you want. Okay, so just as a show of hands, who thinks that our financial system can be improved upon? uh, Or is it just perfect? Like, (laughs) all right, great. Um, So what I'm here to talk about today, I'm going to build up to it. But basically, the the blockchain as a transnational algorithmic regulator of what we think of as a more open financial system. Um, Let me build up to that piece by piece, all right? First, uh, you know, one thing just to level set. A lot of people in technology believe that the blockchain is the most important development since the internet. Um, and that's a big statement. And, and why do folks think that? The reason is that you know, once you've figured out how to make a database of all the money in the world, um, such that it would cost you more than a million dollars to have an entry that represents a million dollars, Uh, Well you can represent any kind of scarce thing right you can represent not just money but stocks and bonds and uh, you know commodities and you know mortgages loans derivatives and even things that we would normally think of as scarce or valuable like your potions in a video game all these things can now be represented as ledger entries. And so this is something where, in the same way that the internet was programmable information, we think of the blockchain as programmable scarcity. Everything that was information, whether music, movies, books, newspapers, got packetized and digitized and you know, transferred over the internet. You can now copy-paste it. You could index it for search engines. You could paste no link and remix it. Uh, and in the same way, everything that's scarce is becoming blockchain-based, right? And so every stock, every bond, every loan, every mortgage. This is a pretty big deal. Um, and uh, so, you know, while I'm talking about blockchain, uh, I just want to be clear that, you know, I and we do think that Bitcoin isn't going away. It is it's the first and continues to be the most important application of, you know, the blockchain concept. I'm very much in the camp of blockchain and Bitcoin, for those who know about that whole thing. Um, and, you know, just as a mental model for how big this thing, you know, may get, um, if you think about, you know, like a little graph, and I was going to give slides. They said I couldn't give slides, so I just have to visualize with me. Okay. If you think about a graph where on the x-axis is like the percentile of Americans, from the earliest adopter to the latest adopter, and the y-axis is the time spent on the internet. Back in the early 90s, even the very earliest adopters didn't spend too much time on the internet. But today uh, you get something where even the 80th or 90th or 99th percentile American is spending a few hours a day on the Internet due to smartphones and Twitter and Facebook and what have you. This went out from a very small percentage of people spending a very small percentage of their time on the Internet to a very large percentage of people spending a very large percentage of their time. And in the same way today you know in 2018 there's a small percentage of people who actually have a fairly large chunk of their net worth in blockchain based assets. And you know, one thing I predict is that within about twenty years, everybody here will have more than fifty percent of your net worth in blockchain-denominated assets. That is to say, your mortgage and your you know loans and your stocks—all those things will either be based on you know blockchain-based technologies or blockchain-inspired technologies for representing scarcity. So that gives a sense of how big this thing can get, right? Like, basically, this whole space is going to become programmable. So um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that. Where we are with blockchain, while there's a lot of hype around it, there's actually fundamental 10x improvements that have already been delivered by kind of cryptocurrency and blockchain. So, you know, we can start with gold, right? Like, Bitcoin is a better gold. It is cheaper, faster, you know, uh, easier to transmit, you know, 10 million or 100 million or a billion dollars of, of Bitcoin than it is of the equivalent amount of gold. And we can see that when the Bundesbank, you know, tried to repatriate, you know, all this all this money in gold from, um, from the New York Fed, it was a very long, common... Complicated and involved process. So the same amount, you know, being done with Bitcoin would be much cheaper. Second, you know, the blockchain has already, you know, improved international wire transfers, right? So if you go and use SWIFT GPI, that's going to be two to three days. Um, but uh, with with uh, you know something like Ethereum or Ripple or what have you, you can do a transaction within you know basically seconds. Uh, and already there's companies that are doing that across borders, and you can send a wire, and you can just refresh the page, see it in the blockchain, boom, done, right? Um, Crowdfunding is another area where, in 2015, a large crowdfund online was maybe 10 or $15 million. And we have just shattered those records, right? So a billion-dollar crowdfund is not that exceptional nowadays. You know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions is, is actually quite common. Um, and that's a 100x improvement in about two and a half, three years. And, you know, part of the point of listing off these 10x's is to kind of zoom out for a second and realize, hey, that's pretty big, you know, even if that's going towards ICOs and other stuff now, you could crowdfund other things. You could crowdfund buildings, you could crowdfund other kinds of capital projects we have only gotten started. Just give you a few more examples. You know, the World Bank has this concept, you know, this, this study they called doing business, uh, which measures the time to incorporate in different countries as a measure of economic freedom, right? So in some countries it's weeks, in some countries it's days. Well, you can get a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain in seconds or minutes, right? Um, and that's actually pretty interesting. It's, it's a V1. It's not everything we think of as a company, but eventually it's going to get there where you have effectively a, an address that you can send money into and a very transparent set of things that contract's going to do. It's like a V1 version of incorporation. So that's another 10x where we've taken it from days to, to minutes. And there's others like you know, the time to set up a bank account. Again, it takes days to go to the you know, bank and set up a bank account. We can do that in seconds with, with the blockchain. So these are all quantitative 10x improvements in, in fundamental financial primitives, right? I could list out a bunch more, but that's the kind of thing. It's like you know when you go from physical mail to email, that's a big 10x in terms of latency. And it takes a while for that to kind of get digested and, and ripple out through the, the entire ecosystem. OK. So the reason I bring that up is blockchain is not just hype, it's actually delivered on certain things. And it hasn't just delivered technologically, it's already created thousands of jobs and many large companies around the world. Issuance, mining, exchange, you know, those are the three big areas. You know, The creation of new cryptocurrencies, the mining of new cryptocurrencies, and the buying and selling of them. Um, and it's very roughly similar to like the 90s era of the internet where exchanges are a bit like the ISPs and, and miners are a bit like the routers. But we're still in very early innings and a lot of the applications have yet to materialize but that infrastructure is being built. Okay. Fifth point, and I'm accumulating to a thing here, but just establishing this point. So the blockchain requires no natural resources. So there's no coal or shale deposits. There's no pollution. You don't need a large labor force. It can be done with a laptop from anywhere. Um, you know, and just basically forget starting your own company. Any kid in, a, in the dorm room or a developing world uh, you know, country can start their own international currency. You know, forget starting your own you know, company, start your own currency. Um, and, and that's really amazing. That's, like, mind-blowing to think that that's now a routine thing, that you can think about doing that. You're not petitioning the IMF or the World Bank. Uh, you know, you're just, boom, hitting some keys on the Internet and getting a community to opt in. You've got a new currency. Sixth. The blockchain is already democratizing technology outside of silicon valley and nyc right and so you know the normal life cycle of a technology company would be you'd raise money on silicon valley and then you'd like ipo in new york and the birth and adolescence patterns of technology are about to radically change. They're already radically changing. Um, you can now start up and, quote, go public uh, you know, from day one via an ICO on the blockchain. And it's definitely not legal everywhere, but it will be legal somewhere. And that's enough. You just need a few countries to, to actually legalize this. And you know, that, that's a really big deal. You know, seventh, you know, the blockchain is already an international phenomenon, right? So, you know, Malta, Bermuda, Gibraltar, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, Singapore, these places are competing for blockchain companies. And um, you know, as noted, if the blockchain creates all these jobs, if it requires no natural resources and people are already, you know, not coming to SF and NYC. Well, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, if you're if you're a you know politician or a regulator, you know there is now competition. There's there's competition. All these countries want the next Wall Street, the next Silicon Valley, to be on their shores, and they're making a bid for it. And really, it's just about you know better policies, uh, not about you know natural resources or anything like that. So, eighth, because all of this, America can win crypto, but is arguably losing crypto. Um, one way of thinking about that, you know, depending on how you measure it, Silicon Valley is, you know, majority immigrant, and every immigrant is also an emigrant, namely someone who picked up and left. Um, and so, if other countries have more amenable blockchain-based regimes, companies and founders will just move there or start there and not, you know, come here in the first place. And you know, in some ways this is already happening. You know, it's very expensive to live in San Francisco. It's harder to get a US visa. Um, these positive regulations in other countries are like a pull factor, and you know, the relative, you know, rest of the world due to globalization is becoming more and more livable. So this is this is a real kind of thing. It's not not a theoretical thing. Now, to be clear, reputable companies will always comply with local law. If you're an American company, you will comply with American law. But you know, we've seen this happen already with stem cell research over the last decade or two. Regulations, unfortunately, pushed a lot of stem cell research out of the US. Uh, and they could push you know, a lot of the blockchain stuff out, too. We'd only see how large the loss is a decade or two from now, because it's an industry that's still in its infancy. But in some ways, you know, it's not just really nation versus nation. That's an important lens on this. It's bigger than that because the blockchain is a transnational thing. It's a transnational algorithmic regulator. And just as background, you know, in 1945, you know, after World War II, the largest equities market in the, in the world was you know, definitely you know, America's. And the most powerful regulator was you know, the SEC. Um, and the rest of the world was either bombed out or under communism, or bombed out and under communism, um, and so there wasn't a lot of you know market activity happening outside. But over the last seventy odd years, the global economy shifted, and you know now you know about ninety-five percent of the world's population is outside the U.S., about seventy-five percent of the world's GDP is outside of the U.S., uh, and you know what, what that means is that there's going to be a shift in in kind of this post-war order which is already kind of happening. And the, you know, the entire order is being rethought, including the financial aspects, and I think the blockchain is gonna be a critical component of that. And in particular, um, you know, within I think about two decades, it'll be recognized that the largest equities market in the world is the internet. And the largest equities, quote, regulators, will be blockchain-based or inspired technologies like Ethereum, okay? And what do I mean by that, right? So um, one way of thinking about it is you've got these seven billion people, And today, it is possible for someone to set up an ICO in Japan and have folks from Turkey and Brazil and India all buying and selling coins into that ICO, right? And what that does is it takes all these previously disjoint national equities markets and puts them together, right, in a way that's never been possible before. And so if, you know, let's say the United States decides to withdraw itself from that equities market, Okay, that's not great, but it's only 4% of the world's population, 25% of the world's GDP. That market will continue to exist. It won't be stopped by that, right? That's, that's a completely new thing. It's what you get with the interaction effect of all of these different, different folks. Um, and so that, to me, means this thing is unstoppable. Right, like there's going to be, you know, improvements for sure on Ethereum, there's going to be other kinds of smart contract systems and so on out there, but that fundamental concept of cross-border trade and investment being facilitated by the blockchain, that's very new, very powerful, it's not going to go away. And one way of seeing that on the ground, so one thing I've seen for myself, is that already today the Ethereum blockchain is facilitating cross-border trade at the seed stage between Chinese and American companies uh, at a level that I've never seen before in in technology. So I'm constantly, you know, I've been an angel investor for some time, but I'm now constantly on coin tables with, uh, you know, not cap tables, but coin tables. A cap table is, you know, the capitalization table of a company. The coin table is who owns what tokens. I'm constantly on coin tables now with Chinese investors, Korean investors, Japanese investors, folks from other places. And the reason is that you know, in the past, um, you know, folks from other countries didn't necessarily trust our legal system and vice versa. But all of us can trust a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. Right? That's a transparent, international, auditable thing. And while it's in its infancy today, that's this really new thing where you know, we, we can actually get you know, better cross-border trade and investment. And again, already today, that, that, that is happening at the seed stage. Um, already today, the amount of funding that's gone into ICOs exceeds the VC investment in blockchain. And already today, there are more coins and tokens that have been created than US companies that have gone public, though you know, the latter is certainly larger in market cap. I don't think that's going to be the case in like, you know, 10 or 20 years. And yet, still today, less than 1% of the world's net worth is in blockchain-based assets. So we still got a lot of ways to go. So you know, if we, it's really interesting to see what an improvement this is if we contrast it to the alternative. Um, you know, Some people know this. But before running you know, the SEC, Jay Clayton was one of the best tech lawyers in the world. And among other achievements, worked very hard to take Alibaba public in, in the US. And the way they did this, they had to set up a variable interest rate um, or variable interest entity in, in the Caymans to bridge the Chinese and American legal and financial systems. And this is this kind of Rube Goldberg you know, machine that's necessary because these two systems are, you know, they just weren't built to be interfaced with. And you know, The Economist has you know, various articles on this kind of thing. But that's how you know, this kind of cross-border investment has been done in the past. How much cleaner to have a system based on technology, which is auditable and transparent, um, you know, and, and reproducible you know, in the form of the blockchain. And so, you know, the, this, is, this is something that's really powerful. Basically, these investors on different sides of different borders, they may not trust each other's legal systems, but they can both trust the blockchain, and that's, that's super new and super interesting. So, um, you know, if, if this is the case, right, if transnational algorithmic regulation is the future, then what's the role of national regulators? Um, what I'd argue, I'd say it is to help build iTunes as an alternative to the BitTorrent. Right? to help build a safe and well-lit path to transition from a national fiat-based system to a more international blockchain-based system. And let me, let me elaborate on that. Right. So the whole point of these blockchain-based decentralized protocols is they're meant to be easy to trust and very hard to stop um it's not going to really be possible to for any one country to stop this market from emerging china, china took quite a swing at it last year in 2017 and the space is way bigger right uh, than it's been so even if a country decides to withdraw itself from this market it's just harming probably its own citizens it's not actually stopping that market now to be clear i do believe the you know blockchain space can be hassled like you know the ra hassled napster and kazaa but if we take that streaming music analogy and we extend it, two decades later, the spectrum of options ranges from the well-lit path of iTunes to the more radical you know, decentralized BitTorrent. And that's a good analogy because fighting the internet in the music space didn't work. The, the basic you know, premise today, even the record labels, I think, would agree that iTunes and Spotify represent a huge improvement over the status quo circa 1995. Um, and you know, it, the thing about streaming is it's not just an improvement over the CDs. It's also an improvement over BitTorrent. But BitTorrent keeps folks honest, right? By analogy, I think we can build a financial system, blockchain-based, that is an improvement over today's, but has cooperation and participation from existing banks, existing regulators, existing entities to build something which is safe, well-lit, and that is better than like the purely decentralized alternative, though that decentralized alternative exists as a check, as a balance, just like BitTorrent is out there uh, in case you know, iTunes or Spotify you know, weren't up to snuff. So, um, you know, that's, that's essentially, you know, how I, I think about it. I think this um, this blockchain-based system, this international financial system, this more open system where anyone can plug in an interface with it, it can be audited by anywhere, it can be trusted to protect their property by people of widely varying backgrounds, or anyone with a computer or smartphone can access it to, to make money, to earn uh, money, to, to invest in other people's projects. That's what an open financial system means to us. Um, that's what we're trying to build towards in the blockchain space. That's what we'd like to build together with you guys. So thank you very much. OK, so I'm supposed to point to people for questions. Um, buy Bitcoin guy, respect. He should be speaking. Uh, I know what he would just say, though. By Bitcoin. Okay. Hi. Hi. Oh, sorry. One of the criticisms I've heard on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is the amount of energy it takes to clear the market and and the the trades, et cetera, that it's, you know, the power output of the Netherlands or something. Could you comment on that? Sure. So I think that... if you compare the bitcoin blockchain's energy consumption to let's say something like paypal servers or what have you you'd say why you know why are we doing this it's it's so much less energy efficient but i think if you actually compare it to you know the brinks trucks and the vaults and the entire system of military and police that we have to maintain scarcity in our property rights regimen it's actually very cheap energetically so like if you think of it as a system for property rights that is actually really new and we don't really measure the energy consumption of the US police system and military, but I think that's a right comparable.
2: I have the mic over here. Okay, go. So I was gonna ask that question, but I'll think of another. Um, do you see Bitcoin as an API between fiat or a reserve for fiat in 10 years, let's say?
1: Oh yeah so I, I I think of Bitcoin as digital gold um, that's I think a common you know way of thinking about it in the space right now. I don't think Bitcoin itself is that API to fiat. I think it is you know the purpose of Bitcoin is to have this base layer uh, that you know cannot be printed um, that can't be diluted that is um, immune to demonetization schemes of various kinds around the world um, and then we build various interfaces like coinbase between the fiat system and Bitcoin or Decentralized exchanges that would allow you to trade from Bitcoin into other cryptocurrencies Yep, miss. Yes. Oh, please state your like name and affiliation. I forgot to do that. Hi,
2: yeah. uh-huh. I'm the first one who gets to do it um, I'm Sonia I'm from the Zcash foundation uh, so Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg uh, proposed an alternative to the digital gold metaphor that Bitcoin and other uh, proof of work cryptocurrencies can be thought of as digital alcohol,
1: actually because you have the grain, which is spoilable and needs to be used up, like electricity, which is hard to, not impossible, but hard to store. Um, And then it gets made into something that is portable and saleable and valuable. Um, Can you respond to that metaphor? Do you think it holds up or do you think it's unnecessarily complicated? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's maybe unnecessarily complicated, but I think there's, a, there's something there, which is to say that um, right now in the power grid, we can't you know, really store energy. Uh, one thing I do know that folks are doing with, uh, with mining in China and possibly other places is when you've got like a large water wheel or you know, geothermal or hydroelectric plant at night and the power isn't being consumed um, you know, in real time, you can store it, you can store it in a battery, or you can maybe store it in a Bitcoin battery by mining Bitcoin. And that itself is a different way of, quote, storing the energy because then you could send that Bitcoin somewhere else and then purchase energy on the spot market over there. So there may be something there in the sense of you have this global conversion function between, you know, like power and money, right? It's like Scarface's equation. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, I don't know if everyone gets that analogy. Um, <laughs> So and and what you can do is actually um, you know start storing energy perhaps in a more efficient fashion. You need to work out the equations to see if that's actually feasible.
2: Uh, hi, Balaji. Uh, my name is Anton. I run a, my team, and I build uh, decentralized apps for uh, fintech firms, primarily private uh, uh, private security organizations. Um, and one thing that keeps coming back again and again um, in various development efforts is the wallet security um, and i know coinbase is simply takes a position where we will simply not provide private key to you you know you come in and then you know get the service but that isn't going to be um, you know applicable or acceptable in many of the other situations and so this continues to be a major you know, kind of a problem that I see. Is there any kind of reference implementation, the trusted auditor reference implementation for wallet security and blockchain that we could just, you know, go and implement that and, you know, and and know that, you know, you know our infrastructure will be secure?
1: Yeah, so with respect to just Coinbase in particular, we do allow you to withdraw all your crypto, right? So while we don't give you your private key, you can at any point, you know, just pull all, all your crypto out. Um, more generally, on you know the question of kind of where wallets are going to go, um, I think in the short term you have a population of tech savvy users who, because they can withdraw their crypto, because they understand private keys, they're comfortable managing them locally, those folks discipline others. You don't need a large percentage of people to be able to exit a system to kind of discipline that system and and avoid abuses. Um, In the medium to longer term, I think uh, more and more folks will have private keys locally on their computer, just like folks have learned to manage files and other things locally, whereas that was maybe not as common in the past. and uh, that'll serve as an anchor where other forms of data are also potentially kept local. Um, but I think it's going to be some time as we migrate towards. I think cloud services are going to still be pretty popular for some time. All right. mean one more question. OK. Yep.
0: Uh, Kirk Tames from uh, I think.
1: Kurt Tames, uh, CTO of Handle Financial. So, in your example
0: where the Alibaba was using the structures through the Cayman Islands to do the impedance mismatching between Chinese and, and U.S., it's it's kind of easy to see. It's easy for me to see where things that can be expressed in a digital smart contract gets gets a lot of grease solving that. But what about all of the normal? Commerce stuff that that re- requires courts and legal systems for things that can't take place uh, in, in digital. Is there is there some way in which your thesis says that, that blockchain uh, assists that transnationally in terms of in terms of regulatory stuff?
1: That's a great question. I think um, I think what happens is more and more and more of the economy is going to get digitized and blockchain based, right? So. Just as uh, as something gets digitized, then you can write a smart contract for it. For example, you know potentially your property rights to your Tesla or to your apartment um, or your house are based on you know a digital lock that you can use to enter it, um, and that becomes tradable itself on the blockchain. And then you can have contract enforcement based on the um, ability to. Uh, you know, open that lock. Now, of course, you might be able to smash it with a hammer or something. You know, there's always some degree of, you know, like, broken abstraction, but at least your first order, if you can digitize it, you could write a smart contract around it. Um, I think we're gonna have to do a lot of development in so-called oracles to map kind of offline or off-chain, you know, source of information to to the blockchain, Um, so you can write contracts on a larger set of things. And I think also you're gonna see more kinds of work become fundamentally digital. So right now when you think about a remote remote worker, you're probably thinking about a programmer or a lawyer or, or or a designer or someone like that, but I think You know, we're already seeing surgeons who do telesurgeries. There's construction workers who work by uh, driving around autonomous trucks in places like uh, Rio Tinto's mines in Australia. They, They drive around autonomous trucks. So more kinds of work is becoming digital. And then again, you can kind of do contract enforcement, potentially in the digital realm. So I think it takes, you know, Decades right like literally multiple decades, but I think more and more things will be amenable to this kind of cross-border blockchain-based enforcement And we'll start with those things where there's just such a pressing pain like cross-border investment at the seed stage um, Where you know, it's, it's already 10x better Maybe have one more question uh, does Coinbase- right, I think you need a microphone All right, just speak loud uh, does Coinbase plan on participating in a federated sidechain among cryptocurrency exchanges? And if so, uh, does the boosted liquidity of such a system, uh, in your view, uh, improve the prospects for a Bitcoin ETF? So I can't talk about our future products, unfortunately. Um. All right. Thanks. <laughs>